Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. We're looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning. This past weekend, one of my army buddies, a guy that was uh, with my wife and I, when Kennedy passed away, he actually was, was up in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, drove down in the middle of the night to be with us the night she passed away, and he was our casualty assistance officer. Um, it, it, at any rate, he's a West Point graduate, about five years ahead of me, and this past weekend, he was able to read the acceptance letter to his daughter, uh, to West Point. And so uh, what, a, what, a, what a really cool uh, moment for, uh, that must have been for him and his family to welcome her, at least potentially, you know, j- getting the letter and graduating. There's a lot of, there's a lot of space between those two events, but, but Lord willing, she will join us in the long gray line as alumni of West Point. One of the first things she's going to get when she gets there in just about a month is a field guide. Now, mine is all chewed up and got wet. It's, it's, you, you, you're given this on your first day there at West Point, and you put it in your back pocket, and uh, sometimes you, you go through some mud obstacle courses with it in your pocket. You forget to take it out. But this is a field guide of all of the knowledge that plebes, freshmen, are required to have uh, to have memorized and to check off and, and to, uh, to, to be able to recite. Whenever you're ready to recite some knowledge, you're standing at parade rest and you stick out a paw. Uh, this, is how you, this is how you draw attention to yourself. This is how, very military. You stick out a paw. You don't wave your hand. Stick out a paw. I'm ready to recite some knowledge. And, and, uh, and anyway, you, you memorize this and, and you recite it uh, to your chain of command. And then once you graduate from what's called cadet basic training or beast barracks, then you get the, the, the more sturdy version called bugle notes. And uh, it's a nice collector item and uh, really kind of neat to, to still have this. But this, these two documents, I, I would say, are sort of the, the Bible of what it means to be a cadet. When, when you're given these when you're given these things on reception day, or at least the field guide on reception day, the purpose is not just to haze, although that's there. I mean, we definitely want to haze freshmen um, and, uh, and give them a hard time and make their life miserable. That's part of the game. It's part of, part of the process. But really, it is to change identity. Okay? So when, when the, you know, 1,200 of the nation's best come together, you know, captains of their sports teams. Many are valedictorians uh, and salutatorians and top 10 in their class and, and leaders in their, in their high school. And when you, when you get a bunch of alphas together, right, the first thing you have to do is to break them all down to their lowest level so that you can rebuild what you want to build, okay? You can build what the nation needs to be built in these leaders. And so, what this knowledge does for us is not simply give us information, but if, if the cadet is successful and if West Point is successful with the cadet, then we are actually changing who that person is. We are changing their identity. They're no longer a civilian track star, captain of their glee club, if that's a thing, I don't even know. We don't know. 
But now they are a West Point cadet and a future Army officer. The way that West Point goes about this is getting the person, this civilian, this young man or woman, to understand that they have a new identity. It's not just behavior modification. We definitely want to change behavior. But it's not simply behavior modification. It is understanding your identity. You have entered, you have, the old life is gone when you raise your right hand and you walk down that tunnel and step off that bus. Your old life is gone and a new life is here. And you are a different person and because of who you are, you are going to live a different way. It's going to affect how you speak. We were given four responses. When asked a question, we were given four responses. Yes, sir or ma'am. No, sir or ma'am. Sir or ma'am, I do not understand. Or no excuse, sir or ma'am. Those were the four responses. We changed how we, how we spoke. It changed what we wore. We, we took our civilian clothes off. In fact, they said, only bring one or two pairs of, of civilian clothes with you. That's all you're going to need. So we walk down the tunnel, we get our book, then we get all of our uniforms. And then by the end of the first day, we're all in complete uniform and we don't change uniforms until Thanksgiving break. Change how we walk. It's called the ping. Hands and arms extended, walking briskly. We change how we talk, how we dress, how we walk. It changes everything about our life. Who we are changes what we do. And would you be surprised if I were to tell you that the actual Bible does the same thing? That understanding who we are in Christ changes our life. So many people go to the Bible thinking that it's a, it's a list of rules to be obeyed. No, it's describing a, a new lifestyle of someone who has a new identity. Okay? And that's what we're going to see this morning in Romans chapter 6, what I believe is the very first command in Romans. So Paul has spent six and a half chapters of telling us who we are, uh, of setting, of laying the groundwork, and now finally we're going to see an imperative. Because of all of these things that I've just told you, the last six chapters, because of who you are in Christ, now live a certain way. All right, let's read Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. Paul says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious and good and kind and merciful to send your son Jesus to die once for all to die for our sin, Lord, so that we would live for you. 
Help us as we work through this passage. Lord, help us make sure that we get that order right, that who we are changes what we do and not vice versa. Lord Jesus, help us to respond with a heart of gratitude and obedience and love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse five says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, notice that, in a death like his, not in his death, we did not die in his death, we didn't die in his place, we didn't die with him, not physically, but we, uh, we died in a death like his. If you go back to verse three, I think this is what Paul is referring to. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized what? Into his death. It's a, it's a death like his. Only he was qualified to die for sins of the world. We would die for our sin, but Jesus died for other people's sins. He didn't die for his own because he was sinless. We were, we were united with him in a death like his. This is how we walk in newness of life. In verse 4, he says that we might walk in newness of life. He's told us that we were united with him in death and in burial through baptism. We were buried with Christ. But now watch, if, if all that we experienced was, was death and burial with Christ, if that's all we were united with him was death and burial, then how would we walk in newness of life? No, it's because we are raised with him that we walk in newness of life. We shall certainly be, Paul says, united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the key. We were dead with him, we died with him, we were buried with him in baptism, and now we are raised with him to walk in newness of life. Now, scholars debate whether Paul is referring to the future eschatological resurrection in which all believers of all time, dead and living, will come up. Obviously, those that are living will just go up, but those that are dead will be resurrected. Some scholars see this pointing to that, but I don't. What I see is Paul is speaking of a symbolic resurrection, just as he spoke of a symbolic death and a symbolic burial. And here's why. Verse five begins with the word for. That's a continuation. That's a connecting word. So the verse five, four in verse five refers back to the previous verse. It connects verses four and verse five. And in that verse, Paul is referring to how we live in this life. Look, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might what? Walk in newness of life. This whole context is, is sin and death and new, uh, newness of life in this life, the way that we live this life. Yes, we will walk in newness of life at the final resurrection. We'll be glorified. We'll be with Jesus. Everything will be perfect. It'll be non-picari, Non posse, non picari. Not able, non posse picari. Not able to sin. There we go. We will not be able to sin at the final resurrection. But I think that what Paul is talking about here, the whole context is how we live in this life in light of the fact that we've been united with Christ. Okay, so four, at the beginning of verse five, connects us back to newness of life. And then verse six 
We see also this theme of death and sin and how we live this life. So the resurrection that Paul is referring to here in verse 5, I believe, and I'm convinced, and and I stand with other scholars, that this is referring to a, a symbolic newness of life so that those that are united with Christ in his death are also united with him in this life and the way we live ought to be changed. The way that we live is changed by our union with Christ. There is real change when a person comes to know Christ. And we're going to see this more and more as we proceed through this passage. Look at the certainty, though, in Paul's voice. He says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Everyone who is saved will be changed. That, that is a certain statement. There's, there's confidence, there's assurance. Everyone who is united with Christ in his death is also united with him in his life. It is also raised up to walk in newness of life. It's not something that we have to will ourselves to. Now we, we have a response and we're going to see that as we move forward in Romans. But this is, this is one of those things that you have to drive home to, your, to yourself. You have to remind yourself, I have been changed. I am being changed. I will always be changed until I meet Jesus face to face. There will be change in my life because I have been united with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. Verse 6, he says that our old self was crucified. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That old self is the sum of your life, of who you were. I described that West Point cadet that came in and his old self was captain or her old self was captain of the team and scholar and and honor society and president of this club and and leader of this club and all all of that, that, that's the summation of everything that you are is the old self. It's the nature into which you were born and the nature you brought into the world, your old self. It is the former way of life. This is, this is what Paul says in Colossians 3, 9. He talks about the former. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Ephesians 4, 22. This is the former life. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. At some point, at conversion experience, that old self is crucified with Christ. And something changes. And now the new life begins and you look back and you realize there was a former life. There was an old self. And that old self was crucified with Christ. Now that word crucified, that's not a present experience. That's not as though, you know, thankfully, we don't have to be crucified. Praise the Lord for that. We're not crucified literally but rather we are crucified symbolically in the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember, this goes back to the federal headship of Christ, the representative headship of Christ. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 6.14. 
But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I what? I have been crucified to the world. You see? Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. He says, I have been crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, so now, so that old self is gone, been crucified with Christ, and now the life I live in the flesh, meaning the life that I currently live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. C.E.B. Cran. might think that it's not fair to, to have Adam's sin imputed to us, that Adam would represent us. I didn't choose Adam as my representative. I didn't ask Adam to sin against the Lord, but in Adam, all sin, because Adam is the federal head. He's the representative of all humankind. We take on the nature of Adam, and in Adam, all sin. So in Christ, all died. In Christ, all were crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus is imputed. The righteousness that is won by the crucifixion of Jesus is imputed to all those who are in Christ. All those who take on his nature. The body of sin. The reason that we, the old self was crucified with Christ is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin is the sin nature. It's, it's, it's that... It's that old man inside of me that still rears his ugly head and says, no, you get to decide, you get to pursue, you get to, to choose what is right and what is wrong. You do what you want. You do you. That's the body of sin. It's that sin nature. And it must be put to death. It must be brought to nothing, Paul says. It must be neutralized, destroyed. And that is the work of the Christian, that is, that, is, that is our work, is bringing that body of sin under the power of the Holy Spirit to nothing so that it no longer enslaves us. This is the lot in life for everyone who is in Adam. Our human nature is enslaved in sin. Even the good things that we do, you know, sinners do good things, People that don't know Jesus, they do good things, but the Lord says that even your good deeds are as filthy rags. Why is that? Because we do even these good things in rebellion against the creator of the universe, our God, the one who deserves our worship and our submission. And so even our good things as lost people, those good things don't count. They're, they're, they're counted as, as sinful. Thomas Schreiner says, this does not mean that sin is forced on them, on sinful people out before Christ. And when I say sinners, I, you know, I was a sinner uh, before Christ. The Bible calls anyone outside of Christ a sinner and anyone in Christ a, a saint. Now, we're saints who sin, 
We don't want to get that twisted. We are saints that sin. But biblically speaking, the terms, those that are outside of Christ are called sinners. And so here's what Thomas Schreiner says. This does not mean that sin is forced on them against their will. It means that they invariably choose to sin because sin is the circumference of their desires as those who belong to the first Adam. It's the circumference of their desires. It is all that they desire. And brother and sister, I just, when I talk like this, I just, I can't go far without reminding myself that that was me 17, 18 years ago. And, and, and there, but by the grace of God, go I. That if it wasn't for the grace of God, that would be me today. Now, I want you to note that this is not saying that we are set free from the presence of sin. It says that we are no longer enslaved to sin. But it does not say that we will not experience the presence of sin. But rather that we would be set free from the power, the tyranny, the mastery, the dominion, to use Shriner's language. We are crucified with Christ. And our old self is crucified with him, yet we live in this already not yet tension. So yes, the old self is crucified with Christ and still we must resist it. Still the old self, the old man rises up within us and says, ah, but is that really what you want to do? We all sin. We don't have to deny that. But that is not the same as being enslaved to sin. You understand? There's a difference between sinning and saying, Lord, I'm sorry for that. I don't know why I keep going back to that. I don't know why I keep getting tripped up over and over again. And being enslaved to sin where we sin with a hard heart, a calloused heart, and we long for that sin and we want to stay in that sin. That, that, is an, that is a sure sign that a person is not born again. That they sin, they love the sin, they want to stay in the sin, they, they, they normalize the sin, they justify the sin. Because what Paul says is that we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we are united with Christ in his death and burial, meaning if we have been converted, born again, then we shall be raised up with him to walk in newness of life. There will be a change in our lives. Verse seven says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Recall here from verse two, he says in, he says in Romans 6, 2, how can we who died still live in sin? He says live in it, but what he's talking about is sin. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So what do we read here? If you've died, that you can't live in sin and everyone who's been baptized into Christ has been baptized into his death, implied here is that if you are in Christ, you have died to sin. And so the question becomes, how can you live in it? How can you go on living in sin if you've died to sin? Instead, what Paul says is that he who has died has been set free from sin. So if you were in Christ, you've died to sin. If you've died to sin, you've been set free from sin. 
If you're in Christ, you've died to sin. If you've died to sin, you've been set free from sin. If you're in Christ, you've died to sin. If you've died to sin, you've been set free from sin. When you say that to yourself, I have been set free from sin. That is one of those, that is one of those fundamental truths that you must remind yourself. Because that old self says, no, I still have dominion over you. That sin nature says, I still have power over you. I still have control over you. And no, you need to remind yourself, I'm in Christ. Therefore, I've died to sin. Therefore, I've been set free from sin. I am free from sin. Sin does not have dominion over me. Sin does not have control. It doesn't have mastery. It doesn't have power over me. This word set free is pretty important in Paul's letters, in, among his 13 letters, of which Romans is one. He uses this term set free 27 times. And that word is generally translated justified or declared. So a, perhaps a better interpretation of this is you have been declared free from sin by God. So sin says, I've got you and I'm going to keep you. And God Almighty says, you have been set free. It's one of those things you need to repeat and believe and repeat and believe and repeat and believe until you believe, until you believe, until you believe who you are in Christ. Verse eight, it's a transitional statement here. It says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So the first half of that looks back at verses one through seven. And the second half looks forward to verses nine through 14. It's a transitional statement. Paul's conviction is that death with Christ will inevitably result in a change of life. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I, I believe the gospel. I believe in Jesus. I was baptized. I want to do right, but I still struggle with sin. Like he didn't, he didn't cut everything off at the beginning. Folks, we're in the sanctification process. It began at a once-for-all-time declaration that you are right with God. And we enter into a lifelong process called sanctification of being made like Christ. But if there is no desire for increasing holiness, there's no desire in your life that, that you would honor the Lord, that you would live for him, brother and sister, you should be concerned. Paul Washer says that if there is no new relationship to sin, there is no new relationship to God. And so the answer is not change behavior. For those of you that would examine your life and look back over the course of your life and say, there's, no, there's been no change in me. The answer is not enter into the sanctification process. The answer is be justified by faith in Jesus Christ right here, right now. Amen? We're going to stay anchored to this, okay? Okay. Because I don't want anyone thinking, well, man, I, my life hasn't measured up. 
I claim to be a Christian. My life hasn't measured up. And so I need to, I need to start acting right. I need to start, I need to start acting as if, as if that actually happened. No, that actually needs to happen. And then once that has actually happened, then this will naturally, supernaturally happen. The old self is dead with Christ and raised to life, raised to newness of life in Christ. It's interesting here that in verse 8, he says, we believe. This is one of those things that, that you have to accept even if you can't see it. One of the pieces of knowledge that we are required to memorize, actually two, there are 78 million gallons of water in Lusk Reservoir when it flows over the dam. Now I can promise you, I have never gone out and measured that. I just believe it because I believe in the institution. I believe that they wouldn't lie to me. And they say there's 78 million gallons when water's flowing over the dam at Lusk Reservoir. I just have to believe that. There are 340 lights in Colm Hall. I promise you, I've never gone and counted them. I just believe it. This is one of those things that we just have to believe because God's word says it. We believe that we will also live with him. Conversion inevitably leads to a changed life. I want you to imagine someone came to you, they were late for work or late to get home. And they said, you are never going to believe this. I was on my way here and I was on time and everything. And I was out on Interstate 80 and my car broke down and I was, I was standing out there beside, beside my car and I got hit by a semi-truck. And you're like, I don't believe you. I don't believe you because you're standing here talking to me. I don't believe you were hit by a semi-truck. And then I want you to hear someone say, I've given my life to Jesus. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised to walk in newness of life. And you're like, I don't believe you. You say that you have been changed, that your, your, your dead heart has been made alive, but you live the same way you've always lived. I don't believe you. Paul's conviction, just like a person who has been hit by a semi-truck is not going to show up to work, a person who has been converted, born again, is not going to live the same way that they used to. Conversion will lead to a changed life. Revelation, excuse me, verse nine here. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Listen to what Jesus says in his own words here in Revelation chapter one, verses 17 and 18. He says, fear not for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive 
forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Praise the Lord that Andrew, just as you said, that there is nothing that is going to dethrone our king. There's nothing that is going to threaten him, that's going to come up against him. Death has no dominion over him, but he is alive forevermore. And the presupposition of Paul in this setting, in this context, is that those who have been united with Christ in his death are also united with him in his life. And so if death no longer has dominion over Christ and sin no longer has, so Paul is linking death, sin, all of this together and specifically applying it to us. And if we've been united to Christ in his life, what conclusion can we safely draw? That death and sin no longer has dominion over us. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He, he's not talk, Paul's not talking about the, the, the physical dying of the body. We all die. And some people, including Paul, died agonizing deaths. When Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? One, he's talking about we have eternal life. Though we die, yet we live. But also in Paul's concept of death is sin. In fact, he goes on, I preached this on Easter. He goes on to say that the power of, of, of death is sin. Because we've been united with Christ in his life, we know that sin and death no longer has dominion over us. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ died once for all time, one death, to cover all the sins of those who would trust in him, and he will never die again. And this is a common term. If you read the book of Hebrews, you find this, this sense of finality that Jesus died once for all time, that it's over, that it's finished. That's what Jesus said on the cross, to tell us die, it is finished Christ died for our sins, Paul says. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. Why did Jesus come? Why did he die? Because you and I, brother and sister, were in sin. We were sinners. We needed salvation. And maybe some of us in this room or listening online are still there are still enslaved to sin, still need to be rescued, still need to be set free. Christ died for you. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without blemish, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the federal headship of, of Adam and federal headship of Christ. And we want to throw out imputation. We want to reject the idea of original sin. We want to reject the idea that in Adam all sinned. Then you can't claim that. Go back to that, Mikhail, please. You, you want to reject this idea of, 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 of representation. Then you can't claim that. If you want to say, well, Adam's not my head, then how was Christ your head? Adam's sin wasn't my sin, then how is Christ's righteousness your righteousness? Amen? 
Amen. Thank the Lord for imputation, right? Imputed righteousness. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not in ourselves, not in our own behavior. I, I, I can't stress this enough, folks, that it is not us picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and deciding that we're going to live right that makes us right with God. It is Jesus Christ who makes us right with God. And from that point, then we begin to live a life that is right to him. R.C. Sproul says, in his death, he dealt effectively and conclusively with sin. I love that. Effectively and conclusively with sin. Now watch this. Winning a victory that needs no second fight and leaves no second foe. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me and for us. The life that he lives, Paul says, the life that he lives, he lives to God. And if we are united with him in his life, then what does that mean for us? Not only are we dead to sin, set free from sin, but now the life that we live, we live to God. Matthew Henry says, he rose to live to God, thus we must rise to live to God. This is what he calls new life, to live by other rules with other aims than we have done. A life devoted to God is a new life. My question for you this morning, this passage begs this question, is your life devoted to God? Do you consider yourself, do you see yourself as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, because let me tell you something, there isn't another option. I have been set free from sin. I live to God. I have been set free from sin. I live to God. Is that your heart's refrain? Verse 11 says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the first imperative, the first command, at least that I can, that I can recall in the first six chapters. It's the first you must, it's the first, don't you see this? That, that six chapters has gone by of a 16 chapter letter. And here's the very first command to do something. And the first command is to live in light of who you are. Oh, the Bible is just a bunch of rules to follow. No. It's an identity. It's telling you who you are in Christ or who you could be. Maybe you don't know Christ and you come here and you're like, I'm tired of my sin I'm tired of living this way. Repent and believe the gospel and give your life to Jesus and let him build a new life for you from this moment. Paul says, consider. Consider yourselves. That means that you must determine in your minds and in your hearts that you live to God. 
that you're dead to sin, that you live to God. You need to make up your mind. You need to remind yourself. How many of you have heard of those daily affirmations? There's some memes going around, right? <clears throat> you say your daily, I won't embarrass you by asking you to raise your hand if you date. I am good enough. I am smart enough. And people like me. Now that's, that's uh, Stuart Smalley. I'm dating myself a little bit there. Say your daily affirmations, right? Maybe, part of, maybe your daily affirmations need to be, I have been set free from sin and I am alive to God in Christ Jesus today and every day and throughout the day and that night before you go to bed, I am, al- I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Make up your mind. That word consider is also translated reckon or impute. Impute to yourself. Just as you have been imputed the righteousness of Christ, it's been given to your account. Now, here's here's your first action. Ready? Impute to yourself that you are dead dead to sin and alive to God. Impute that. Reckon that. Mull over that, meditate on that, work through that, dwell upon that. We don't spend a lot of time meditating. We don't spend a lot of time dwelling. We're so busy. We fill our our free time with memes and videos and reels and social media and emails and Fox News and CNN and whatever. I'll try to get all of them. Right? We fill videos, video games. Thank you. Oh, man. (laughs) video games. We fill our time with, with things and we leave no space to meditate on these truths. I can promise you that what I wasn't doing at West Point during my plebe summer was watching reels. If I had free time, what was I doing? Reading, remembering, memorizing. Okay, what is, the, what is Schofield's definition of discipline? How's the cow? How many lights in Colum Hall? How many gallons in Lust Reservoir? I'm reminding myself who I am, where I've come, and what is expected of me. Dwell on this. Reflecting on your identity curbs sinning. Reflecting on your identity curbs sinning. You know, it's, it's one thing to confess our sin. We're called to confess our sin. 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Praise the Lord that, that you and I, when we fail, when we fall, when we sin, we can come to God and we can confess our sins to him and he will forgive us. But this is more. This takes it to a new level. Yes, it's great that we would confess our sins, but how about we live a life devoted to God and we desire not to sin in the first place? Right? And, and that would be God's desire for us at every temptation. The Bible says that wherever we are tempted, God makes a way for us to escape. And God would have us to choose. And so theoretically, I want to make this, this clear. Theoretically, hypothetically, it is possible for a Christian to live a perfect life. That's probably not going to happen because that old self still rises up. But at every temptation... The Lord provides a way of escape and would desire that you say no to sin and that you say yes to him. 
So understanding who you are in Christ, who Christ has made you, is the key to not simply confessing your sin, but curbing your sin. Who, who are you? Who are you? Let's go to Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Okay, you bring up Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Listen to this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you loved us, that's where we start. We start talking about who we are. I was sharing with a couple the other day, you know, about what does the gospel say about you? It says I'm a sinner. And what else? It says I needed a savior. And and what else? That, That Jesus died for my sin. What does that say? It says that God loves me. Right, the gospel says, yes, you're a sinner. But it gets to God loves me. You understand? That the, 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 the death of Jesus Christ demonstrates God's love for us. But look, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You were dead in your sin, now you've been made alive together in Christ. Who are you? How foolish would it be for a senior at West Point to walk across that stage and, 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 and grab his diploma and still think that he's the captain of his high school football team? Still think that he's a, he's a civilian, still live like he's a, a civilian? Starting to grow my hair out a little bit, feeling like a hippie. That's what we call them, long-haired hippies. Imagine if, if this, this kid, you know, didn't want to cut his hair, live like a civilian. I'm a civilian now. Man, it feels good to say that. 30 years, I'm back to, back to being a civilian. Back, back at it. But I, I don't expect you to clap at my jokes. You're not my wife. I expect her to do that. But look, here's, so you were dead and you've been made alive in Christ. And here's what Paul says in Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not desire, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You have been, you have died to sin. You have been set free from sin and alive to God. If you walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So many people are thinking, man, how do I, how do I give up this sin? You know, man, we're dealing with pornography in our church. We're talking about it. We're not going to let this be the little secret that, 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 that uh, is swept under the carpet. We're dealing with pornography. August 18th, I hope it's already on your calendar, the You Are Not Alone men's rally. How men do we, do we walk in purity? How do we deal with this sin? Well, it's not, it's not just in filters. You know, filters are a good step, but everyone knows you can beat filters. And it's not accountability because you can lie to your accountability partner. It is reminding yourself that you belong to God and that you have been set free from this and that every temptation, you have a responsibility and the opportunity to say no to sin. And pornography is one thing, gossip's another, and, and pride is another, and bickering and, 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 and harshness and all this, at every opportunity to sin, at every temptation, God has made a way for you to escape. And brother and sister, the jail cell has been opened. Walk out. 
If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I'll leave you with a couple pieces of knowledge here. I already told you about the, the Lusk Reservoir. Some of these things are just funny. If you want to know how many milk cartons are left on the table, they ask, how's the cow? The response is, sir, she walks, she talks, she's full of chalk. The female of the bovine species is highly prolific to the nth degree. And nth is however many cartons of milk are remaining on the table. It's a funny way of asking how many cartons of milk are left on the table. How many gallons are left in are, are in Lust Reservoir? 78 million gallons when the water flows over the dam. How many lights in Colm Hall? 340 lights. Now, I'll be honest with you, I had to go and refresh myself on all these. <laughs> but listen, there was a point in which as a new cadet in Beast Barracks, I didn't know who I was. Still thought that I was a civilian and I'm immersed in this opportunity to grow. And my character, my life is transformed before my eyes. And I had to remind myself over and over and over and over again of this new life that I'm living of these new expectations, of this new identity. Brother and sister, maybe this morning you need to realize that, that you don't give enough time to thinking about who you are in Christ. You don't dwell on his word. You don't know his word. I can promise you that as a plebe, I was hitting this Bible, committed to memorizing this, way more than many of us are committed to this and wondering why am I not living changed? Because you don't know who you are. You don't know who God has made you. Brother and sister, go to the word. Meditate on these truths of scripture. Tell yourself every morning, every night, I have been set free from sin and made alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You initiate it, you grow it, you develop it, you challenge us, you change us. Lord, help us to live lives that are submitted to you, fully devoted to you, giving our lives to you, holding nothing back. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. 
If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.